Hello, and welcome to the Harassment-Free Workplace Podcast. I'm April Turow of Navigating Integrity Associates. This podcast is for CEOs and HR professionals of small and medium-sized businesses to learn practical suggestions that can be used right away to address harassment in the workplace. We are committed to creating workplaces that work for everyone. Welcome. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Harassment-Free Workplace Podcast. I'm your host, April Tarot, and I'm excited that you're joining us yet again for another exciting episode. Today, I am so excited that we have Flo, Flora, which do you go by, Flo or Flora? Either is fine. You can call me Flo. (laughs) Okay. Officially Flora Weinberg. Um, Flora Weinberg is a sexual assault and investigations lawyer. Ah, so excited to have you here. Sexual assault is obviously something that has either affected all of us or we know somebody who has affected us. So I'm so excited that you're here. Welcome, Flora. Thank you very much for having me. I am thrilled to be on this podcast and I very much so appreciate the opportunity to weigh in on and contribute to this topic. It's near and dear to my heart. Excellent. Well, let me introduce you to our listeners by reading your bio. Flora is a formidable advocate specializing in labor and employment law with a specific focus on sexual assault, harassment, and human rights litigation and workplace investigations. Employing a client-centered and trauma-informed approach, Flora's background in both criminal and civil law enables her to represent clients from all walks of life with compassion, tenacity, and focus. In turn, she uses these skills to provide informed and thoughtful legal advice while incorporating strategic or creative solutions to myriad workplace and human rights-based issues. Flora recognizes the value of a healthy and productive workforce and works alongside both employees and employers to achieve positive, sustainable legal outcomes predicated on trust and professionalism. Well, welcome, Flora. Thank you so much. So let me, let's talk. Tell me your story. How did you get into specializing in sexual assault and civil litigation, et cetera, et cetera? Well, uh, growing up, I was fortunate enough to have um, pretty social justice oriented parents. And I remember being um, around seven or eight years old when my mother took me to the Montreal Polytechnique um, massacre march honoring the 14 women who lost their lives. And I hadn't really yet formed uh, a a sense of what had happened, but I understood enough to know that women had been targeted and that that was profoundly wrong. And I think that is the turning point that marked my commitment to addressing gender-based violence in my work and dedicating my my life, my volunteerism, and certainly my work trajectory to um, dealing with these issues and and becoming a lawyer only allowed me to do that from a from a different lens, from a different standpoint, a legal standpoint, which I feel is a position of power and privilege. Um, and it has allowed me to advocate for survivors of sexual violence. Um, so I would say that was a starting point for me. That's so great. Thank you. Thank you for doing what you do. It's one of those worlds that people either feel so pulled to make a difference in, or they just like, I can't go there. How do you do that? So how do you do that? How do you do that work that is so um, potentially traumatizing to obviously to the victims, but also to yourself just being in that role? Mm -hmm. It's, it's actually a question 
that I do get a lot. And I imagine anyone else practicing uh, in this area gets that question. And I think there's always a balance to be struck between um, compassion and empathy, which is something that we'll discuss, but also being able to be um, a zealous and effective advocate. And I I think some people don't necessarily understand that you can be and practice both of those things. You can still advocate for someone effectively while also being empathetic to their situation and compassionate as a person. And I do think that you have to be able to compartmentalize to a certain extent. Um, I don't know how far in the legal profession conversations around vicarious trauma really exist. <laughs> there are some of us pushing to have those discussions, but I, I do think that having a deep understanding of what trauma is and how it manifests helps practitioners to perhaps de detect the ways it might show up in their own lives and to make a, an assessment, an ongoing assessment of whether it's affecting their ability to advocate for someone. Um, I personally have been fortunate enough to be able to do so. And I, I take pride in being able to meet people in the places they're at um, and to extend my compassion, but also my advocacy. But I do think it's a regular check-in because at the end of the day, we're all people and being party to someone's lived experience of trauma is not something to take lightly. So mm -hmm. I, I feel very privileged that people place that amount of trust in me to share their their deepest traumas. And I have a duty. I have a, a due diligence duty to make sure that I am able to sufficiently and adequately represent them from a from a more neutral standpoint as their lawyer. I'm not uh, their I'm not their therapist. I'm not their friend. And sometimes those boundaries actually they, they do make sure that the advocacy is more effective. There's so much in there. I, we could have a whole other <laughs> podcast just on vicarious trauma. Having come from a healthcare background, they're starting to see that and starting to do studies on vicarious trauma and how to deal with it as care providers. Um, so, you know, maybe the, the healthcare world can help out the legal world, but I think the healthcare world still trying to figure it out too. So yeah. it, it really is a good, a good, conversation to have especially if your workplace is something that does experience vicarious trauma like how do we deal with that as caregivers as lawyers as advocates as whatever industry you're in where vicarious trauma can happen like how do we approach that let's move that to another <laughs> another <laughs> podcast so much to say about that what may I add one thing actually sure. I just wanted to add that part of the recognizing of vicarious trauma or even yourself if you have someone if you are someone who has experienced trauma is that of course we we now know from the literature and from advanced conversations around mental health that um, it, it comes along with the stigma and the misunderstanding of trauma in general and certainly vicarious trauma and so if we are in workplaces um, that don't understand perhaps how to address, and we're, we'll probably get into this, but you know how to address the stigma and the shame um, and the connotation, the negative connotation around trauma generally. Mm -hmm. um, we're not going to be able to advance those conversations or really dig into what employee well-being well-being means. I mm -hmm. think. 
So. Oh, so true. Thank you. You've given me another thing to add to the episodes <laughs> to do in the future. So, uh, but let's get back to your specialty of sexual assaults, investigations, et cetera, et cetera. So um, one thing I ask all of my guests when they come onto the show is to come up with three kind of practical tips that my listeners who are employers, CEOs, HR specialists, things that they can do right here, right now to implement into their workplaces to help them decrease harassment in the workplace, obviously related to your specialty. So with you, with sexual assault and, um, you know, harassment investigations, um, what are three things that employers could do right here, right now? Well, I love that you gave me some homework (laughs) (laughs) because, you know, I think it's, it's good to compel some thought around this and not um, just come up with a generic response around making sure that we have effective policies, like thinking a little bit more deeply around it. I sort of came up with, with these three things. The first, the first is to practice empathy. Mm. We'll sort of deconstruct that a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, the second is to know your limits as an employer. And I say this um, because I think that we're all human and we're all fallible and we all wear a lot of hats. Um, but I think it's it's good to take a step back and reevaluate what your capacity is as an employer and to know your limits and accept them honestly and humbly. And the third is to to try and understand or deconstruct the zero tolerance narrative or policy that we see popping up uh, in workplaces and what that might mean for a workplace culture, for um, the range of progressive discipline, uh, disciplinary action. So those are my three topics that I came up with. Excellent. Well, we are in for a good episode then. So let's start with the first one. So practicing empathy. So tell me what, tell me what you mean by practicing empathy. Cause I, I think it's one of those things that all of us kind of have a somewhat feel for, but we don't have a good, like, how do we get our fingers into it and really understand what empathy is? Well, I wondered if you took uh, a survey of 10 employers who were obligated to Uh, conduct a workplace investigation, which is now mandated by law in Ontario. And you ask them, is there any room for empathy within the investigative process at your workplace? I'd be curious to know what their responses would be, because I think that employers have a lot on their minds. And of course, there's a a vast array of employers. You've, you know, um, solo and small practitioners, you have large firms and corporate entities, and, and so with wearing these many hats, I think it's very easy to get bogged down with all of the things that you are liable for, all of the things you are legally mandated or obligated to do and accomplish and the requisite timeframes. And so I think that the, the quote unquote soft aspect of managing a workplace and conducting an investigation, um, namely being empathetic towards the people you're investigating would not be top of mind. And I think it's easy for that concept to be misconstrued as sympathy Mm -hmm. uh, or perhaps siding with one employee over another, or perhaps might even just raise the question of how to practice empathy in a non-neutral way so that you're not jeopardizing the optics of being a fair employer. And it's just as important for a healthy workplace as conducting a neutral, unbiased investigation. And so by empathy, I mean, at the end of the day, it's people talking to people. 
Mm -hmm. It's people who are in the vulnerable and precarious setting of their employment who um, are, are possibly at risk of losing their livelihood, who are having to address allegations that might be quite uncomfortable or perhaps you have just experienced some form of sexual assault and harassment, an employer is now tasked with investigating this and maybe has never come across this issue in his or her past. Mm -hmm. And so it's people talking to people and there is a way to elicit more information. And this this comes down to conducting a trauma-informed workplace investigation where being empathetic to someone's experience allows you to get more information and to put people at greater ease. So it's, it's so important. And I think like just really standing in that place of empathy will in itself help decrease the chances of re-traumatizing, right? Because yes. let's face it, investigations are pretty stressful. Mm-hmm. And if they're not done in a trauma-informed way or with empathy, then you can re-traumatize the people going through it. Right. Like if you're asking questions in an inappropriate way or asking the wrong questions or, you know, coming from a place of power over as opposed to, you know, just allowing the person to have a little bit of control in the interview, I think is is so important. So, um, yeah, yeah, there's so much in that. Yes. So much about these discussions and and the nature of sexual violence in particular, we know is about power. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so allowing someone to feel respected and heard as they are participating in a workplace investigation with an employer who is approaching it from a place of empathy and responsibility, um, I think allows for a greater and better outcome. And however you define that, I mean, that that can have a very varied form of definition but Mm -hmm. I think ultimately empathy is not weakness Mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that you are weak as an employer to practice empathy and it shouldn't be construed as a soft or intangible thing that isn't as important as ensuring that you are not liable they go hand in hand Mm. so good so so good and again we could probably have a whole podcast on just empathy but (laughs) anyways okay so that's the first one is practicing empathy especially in the investigative process really making sure you're holding space for people in a way that they feel you know that it's not as stressful it's one of the things that I like to say all the time in my interviews is you know my job is to try to make this as comfortable as possible for you it's an uncomfortable situation I just want to help make this more comfortable is there anything I can do to make you feel more comfortable and you know just asking those questions right like of just what do you need here right now like getting in their world seeing what it's like Mm -hmm. so yeah yeah Yeah. sometimes the, the, the smallest efforts can have the largest impact I mean really like for people to feel heard goes such a long way it and really does if you as an employer can do that and take that extra step extra step and understand why it's important uh, not just in the context of that investigation but I'll just add for for your workplace as a whole you know it you can't talk about employee well-being but not take into account how your policies and procedures are being rolled out mm-hmm. because then they're without merit or they're without teeth so Anyway, I really liked what you said about empathy and about the different forms of questions and the steps employers can take, because ultimately that's how empathy manifests, is trying to to make people feel more comfortable while taking into account the fact that perhaps they've just experienced real trauma. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like to say, I try to put myself in their shoes. Like, what are they feeling right here, right now? Like in this investigation, 
How uncomfortable are they? What are they nervous about? What can we do to make it a a safer environment for them to be able to open up and really share what's going on? So Mm -hmm. excellent. Okay, cool. Let's go on to number two. So knowing your limitations as an employer, what kind of limitations? I don't have any limitations. What are you talking about? (laughs) Me neither. How can we? Well, number one sort of bleeds into number two, doesn't it? Because um, if you are a young employer and perhaps it's your first time managing a workforce uh, and you are being tasked essentially or you're obligated by the province to uh, conduct a workplace investigation related to allegations of sexual assault or ongoing sexual harassment, um, the the onus is on employers nowadays to understand and to implement a trauma-informed approach to these workplace investigations. And it's okay to not know what that is. But Mm -hmm. I think if if an employer is not aware of what that is or how to conduct one, if you don't have the resources to carry that out, or perhaps you recognize the limitations on your own emotional literacy, um, for the sake of your employees' well-being and probably for the outcome of the investigation itself, which could have real um, ramifications in terms of discipline for those employees, the, the onus is on the employer to understand and to verbalize by perhaps outsourcing the investigation, mm-hmm. whether or not they're capable of doing it themselves. And there's no, there's no shame in that. It could be a question of resources. And perhaps if you, if you have an unconscious bias, which clearly you would not be aware of, um, the hope is that you would learn from any mistakes what your limitations are, but the, the real harm that you could do to someone by investigating allegations of this nature and not understanding re-traumatization or the way triggers manifest um, or the, the profound harm that you could do to someone is dangerous. It compromises the integrity of your investigation. It compromises someone's sense of safety and Ultimately, at the end of the day, it's going to lead to harm for your workforce. And it, it it's going to affect your bottom line. If you don't do it right the first time, it's going to escalate. Mm-hmm. So I'm always telling employers to write the first time. Like if it's beyond you, please hire externally. There are people who specialize in this. There are people who can handle, especially something as sensitive as sexual harassment or sexual assault. I just think that those ones should almost always be, you know, hire out. <laughs> that yeah. how, because everybody's going to be biased in some way shape or form right like, and, and your workplace will be better off for it totally like, you know i i understand that employers i i think generally most employers uh genuinely want to do the right thing they mm-hmm. want to do a good job they want their employees to feel heard they want to make sure they're covering off on all of the things that they are responsible for doing but that doesn't mean that you know how to do it properly or effectively and i think as you said, I, I agree with you that especially with allegations around sexual violence or sexual harassment, um, checking in with yourself as an employer on what your limitations are um, is, is really important because of the harm that could ensue if you don't. And I'll just say one more thing about this. Mm-hmm. I think there's the perception that allegations of harassment are not as severe as perhaps allegations of sexual assault. And I just want to say that these experiences are subjective and um, people's resilience shows up in so many different ways. And to assume 
that just because, quote unquote, just because someone has experienced harassment, it isn't as severe because no one technically touched them mm-hmm. is a really outdated and incorrect assumption of how gender-based violence unfolds. And so employers should take allegations of harassment just as seriously. And we have case law now in this province around cyberbullying and cyber violence. And so if you are an employer who has a, a hybrid workforce or a completely remote workforce, and you are getting allegations of online harassment that have has a sexual component to it, all the more reason for you to check in and understand your limitations around whether or not you can properly investigate it. So good. Yeah. There's, there's just so much there. It's just, you're right. Like sexual harassment is not less than sexual assault. It's different mm-hmm. than, but could escalate. And mm-hmm. uh, is so, so important. Like, let's just deal with it right the first time. And confidentiality. I mean, the, yeah. the, the gossip mill and the rumor mill and the role of social media these days. Oh. I mean, it, it's difficult to feel like any terrain is sacred. And people do not perform well when they feel unsafe at work. It's very clear. And employers are obligated to ensure the safety of their workplaces. It's that simple. And if you need help understanding how to get there and how to make sure your employees feel safe and valued and protected, reach out to someone who specializes in this area. It's not a sign of weakness. Mm -hmm. Outsourcing is not a sign of weakness. It's actually a sign of taking this seriously so that, as you said, the investigations are conducted properly the first time. Because your reputation will end up online. And if you are known to be an employer who um, takes these things seriously, it it bodes better for you reputationally. And especially in today's climate where it's really hard to attract really good talent, you've got to be seen as somebody who takes this seriously. People are just like, no way, I'm not going to deal with it. Uh -uh." Mm -hmm. And let's get into your third point. Talk to me about deconstructing the zero tolerance policy. Okay, well, I... I, again, I, I would be curious to, to do a survey of which um, workplaces have a zero tolerance policy, I think. So the Ontario Human Rights Commission has come out with statements on zero tolerance policies, especially with school boards. Um, and they don't necessarily um, construe it as a, a policy or program per se, but they consider it a, a practice. And it's predicated on the establishment Uh, of certain consequences or a range of consequences um, for certain acts or infractions. And I don't mean to sound too legal about it, but the the crux is is that um, if a certain act is committed and is found to be committed, the form of discipline is mandatory. And so with that, some people might say, well, there's clarity and there's transparency. And it shows that we as a workforce take sexual violence seriously. And, uh, you know, if at the conclusion of a properly conducted workplace investigation, these allegations are substantiated, then you will face this distinct form of discipline. And the only reason I wanted to talk about this is because there's a discussion around how this may impact any sort of punitive aspect of workplace culture, but also is there a role to play for employers in taking into account what we consider mitigating factors? Mm -hmm. Uh, I tend to 
feel like um, the specter of mitigating factors when it comes to sexual assault and harassment are few. Um, we need to understand the laws around consent, um, which is difficult for many employers who perhaps don't have a legal background or, I mean, consent is an extremely difficult legal area in general. But I think it, it begs the question, who you're hiring as a workplace investigator and are there any mitigating factors that would weigh against the existence of or the implementation of a zero tolerance policy? What kind of workplace culture are you creating with uh, a policy or a practice that leaves no room for any mitigating analysis if the allegation is sexual in nature? And I just raised this question because I think it's important if you are going to have a zero tolerance policy, that it, that it is incredibly explicit to everyone in the workplace, that you have training on it regularly, and that people have the opportunity to ask questions of, of an employer who has a policy or a practice like that, because the whole point is that the form of discipline is mandatory at the, at the end. And if that mandatory discipline is termination. An employer is going to want to make sure that they understand any legal consequences, for example, unjust dismissal claims, et cetera, around having a mandatory discipline uh, outcome. It, it is so good. Like, what do you think a zero tolerance policy does for the culture? Like, does it add to the culture? Does it detract from it? Like, overall, what, what, what do you think it does? I think that um, it really highlights the importance of having a properly trained trauma-informed workplace investigator because um, that person is going to be tasked with assessing credibility and perhaps, depending on the scope of their mandate, providing recommendations to the employer uh, that could potentially lead to a mandatory form of discipline, including termination. So part Part A answer to your question would be, I think it highlights how important the actual workplace investigation is. Um, and B, I think it really highlights the fact that that workplace is not going to tolerate um, any substantiated allegations around sexual assault and harassment, which I do think is important because we know that there are a lot of unfortunate myths around sexual violence that still prevail. We know that misogyny is still real. We know homophobia and transphobia are real. And the intersection between all of those things and social location, including poverty and class, all of those things still exist in how people treat each other. And so I do think that having a workplace culture that does not tolerate in any way, shape or form, um, harassing, bullying, or sexually violent behavior is appropriate nowadays. I think that the barriers people have faced in reporting these types of things have been so monumental that it is beholden on employers to do what they can to make sure people feel safe coming forward for the benefit of all, for the benefit of that organization and its reputation, for the benefit of its healthy workforce, for it's bottom line profitability because when people are happy and feel safe, they are able to work better. <laughs> it's mm. simple. And so I do, I do think it lends to 
uh, a workplace culture that shows it's taking those types of allegations seriously and investing the thought and time and resources into understanding those types of acts and reacting and responding accordingly, not just because they have a checklist of things to uh, to make sure that they're covering off their legal liability, but because they actually care about doing it right mm-hmm. and making sure that it's not perpetuated in any way. It's so good. And I'm just, I just want to take the devil's, the devil, devil's advocate approach for just a second. Mm-hmm. Do you think it would hinder victims from coming forward knowing that, oh, if I came forward with this, they're going to lose their job and that's too much? Because I, 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 I just know that some of the sexual harassment, sexual assault victims that I have talked to or complainants that I've talked to have been really hesitant to come forward and I don't want them to lose their job. And I don't know, like just there's that side of mm-hmm. having been victimized um, yeah. that can also, do you think it would detract from people coming forward? I absolutely think that there, <clears throat> I mean, th- this is the value of this conversation. And I, mm-hmm. you know, I think that there is value in understanding um, different ways of managing a workforce and managing people while still remaining legally compliant, which is to say, I mean, this is why we have alternative dispute resolution. This is why we have mediation. This is why we have people who believe in rehabilitation as, a, as opposed to discipline or punishment. Um, it depends on the kind of workplace you want to run and the extent to which you feel you can properly take into account those mitigating factors so that if people do continue working together, uh, what's not lost is the employer taking those allegations seriously. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I don't know, ne- I'm not necessarily of the belief that if, if those allegations are substantiated, someone absolutely has to lose their job. I think the conversation is far more nuanced and complex, but I do think it should give employers pause of whether or not there's capacity to implement a zero tolerance policy. And if you deconstruct that, as you said, how do people come forward safely if they don't want the respondent to lose their job at the end of it? Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and if the employer says, okay, we'll try to uh, incorporate some other form of discipline, does that then undermine the existence of your zero tolerance policy? Exactly. Such a rich, rich conversation. And we could talk all day. I'm sure you and I, (laughs) we both have such an interest in this topic. So it's so lovely, so lovely to talk with you about it. So thank you, Flora, so much for being here. We're going to put all of Flora's contact information in the show notes. So uh, that's how you can get a hold of her. Um, If you need somebody who's a specialist in sexual assault and harassment, (laughs) Flora is your person. So thank thank you. Thank you. I really appreciated this opportunity and I hope we can have many conversations about this topic. And I know it's, it's near and dear to both of our hearts. So thank you truly. Oh, thank you. Thank you for the work you do in the world. It is so needed. Thank you for being one of the brave ones that's willing to dive into this fire. Um, So it takes a certain person. So, um, so thank you for that. And thank you to our listeners for keep tuning in. We are so appreciative of you without you, this podcast doesn't exist. And we hope you're 
enjoying it and receiving lots of value from it. If you are receiving value of it, what is gold to the podcasters in the world is reviews and rating us. So like go and leave a review, go and rate us. And the most importantly, subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to subscribe. It really helps us out. That's kind of how podcasters are known in the world of our listeners. So make yourself known, please go rate and review. Thank you for listening. Um, and we look forward to our next our next episode sometime in the future. Thanks very much, Flora. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for the Harassment Free Workplace Podcast. Subscribe now wherever you listen to podcasts so that you don't miss an episode. And please spread the word. Feel free to send us feedback, questions, and suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear from. We'd love to hear from you. For more information on workplace investigations and assessments, please visit www.harassmentfreeworkplace.com. Till next time.